It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me or you you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. (laughs) I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, Longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. They were illegal. They were illegal. Tens of thousands of votes. He ruled that they were illegal. We have a woman with us today, Catherine Engelbrecht, who heads True the Vote, which has uncovered massive illegal ballot harvesting and other forms of ballot fraud, a scheme with 2,000, they call them ballot mules. These are people. They call them mules, people. And they walk in early in the morning with thousands and thousands of ballots and they stuffed the ballot boxes in Georgia and other states and they have it on tape now all they have to do is release the tape they don't want to release the tape they don't want to release the tape but it's in tape and it's on tape in more than just one state and they're looking at it now very strongly they don't want it to get out they don't like it because it would show that the election was a fraud they don't like it let's see what happens All right, that was President Trump at a rally in Texas just a couple of weeks ago. A couple of things really come to my mind, given the week that it is. President Trump told us over and over again there had been election fraud. And, of course, many of us, you know, I said that at the, I've said that on the microphone, not daily anymore, but almost daily, certainly for a year and a half. Um, But we were called uh, conspiracy theorists, and we were told that it's the big lie, and people were punished. For believing the big lie. In fact, many of the people arrested uh, that were in the cap- at the Capitol on January the 6th have been made to recant their silly, foolish, big lie notion that there was any kind of nefarious activity uh, on the election of 2020. That's how big a deal it has been for the media and the press. And it, I find myself wondering if now the revelations of the John Durham report have revealed how Hillary Clinton and her operatives and the Democratic Party really surveilled and undermined and really committed treason against this country uh, in regard to the election of 2020. So I'm wondering now if people will still think this is the big lie or if people now will be willing to understand that what we've been saying for months and months and months is actually true. Well, President Trump in that rally called out someone whose name is very familiar to me, Catherine Engelbrecht, Uh, was a central figure in the election starting back in 2008, as I recall, and I think that's when my path first crossed hers. And there's no one really who understands what's been going on uh, in these election with the election fraud uh, than Catherine. Uh, She founded True the Vote back, I think, in 2007. Um, uh, She, by the way, she describes herself, let me just say, as a mother, a business owner, a native Texan, and a lifelong practitioner of common sense. And certainly she is that. You've seen her on national television many times. I think she's been quieter this last few years, uh, but she hasn't been not busy. She's been very busy. I want to also say, to set the stage, Catherine was, along with her husband, 
a business owner in Texas, around the Houston area, I believe, uh, in 2007. They had a very successful business, and something happened that said, where they said to themselves, they were completely apolitical, that they had to get involved. And so I want Catherine to tell her story this morning before we tell you What's happening now with the 2020 election investigations? So here to join us is the founder and president of True the Vote, Catherine Engelbrecht. Catherine, good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so what what was that thing back in 2007 (laughs) that here you are operating a successful business? Busy. I'm sure you have your degree in business from University of Houston. You're a business person. And most business people don't want to get involved in politics. What happened that made you want to get involved? Well, for me, it, it, although I, I began to get sort of uh, a notion of what was uh, going to become um, clearly now, you know, a decade on, a, a central part of my life. But back in 2007, I was just waking up to the fact that government was everywhere. As you say, I was a small business owner, uh, very involved in um, my children's school and in our church and in uh my, my small town community and everywhere I turned, government seemed to be putting restrictions on everything that we were doing. Uh, and, and, and in my work at the time, that was in the oil and gas or in the energy. And you may all recall, this is now 2007, 2008, still getting into you know, pre-Obama. But uh, once um, President Obama was elected, uh, things, things became um, really tough on the uh, energy sector, and we got an up close and personal look at all of that. And so, for me, it really was in 2009, when uh, the, through the birth of the Tea Party, uh, that I I realized, you know, there's there's a whole lot of people now that are asking questions, not unlike what's happening right now, um, frankly, and it's a good thing. Um, people were asking questions about what is really going on and what can I do about it, and I find myself uh, asking those very same questions. And so. There was an off-year election in Texas. Uh, we got involved, very small group, um, and decided let's go work at the, let's go work at the polls. And this that was there was a need for volunteers, and really, true, the vote was was born out of the need to remind people that hey, we need to go work at the polls and we need to be involved, uh, not not anticipating all that was to come. Uh, so we went to go work at the polls. A small group of us came back and compared notes, and although most of us had had wonderful experiences, there were enough of us that had uh, similarly off-putting experiences at the polls, where people would, at the time, Texas did not have photo voter identification, so we saw people coming in with more than one ID card, uh, people coming in and and watching, we would watch as the judge would instruct them in who to vote for, not how to vote, but who to vote for, And, and again, at the time, we were just slack-jawed, like, what, what, if, if this is what happens when people show up and watch, what, what happens when nobody's here, and why, has, why haven't people been here? And, and it opened up this whole sea of questions. So we started True the Vote, and um, very quickly, I mean, within weeks of my filing for our 501c3 status uh, with, uh, with the IRS, uh, we were put on um, what what can only now, in hindsight, be described as a as a, um, a you know a national radar um, that the White House uh, set on on our on our watch uh, to to kneecap us as hard as they could as early as they could in the life of the organization. And so, beginning um, late in 2010, 
again, we're just still a very small organization. We've, we've done some poll watching. We've begun to do some research that has gotten some national attention. Uh, but, but that's really where the, true, the story of True the Vote takes its first turn, because even though we were wholly dedicated to election integrity, I found myself on the receiving end of 23 different um, audits or investigations or inquiries from five different government agencies. Now, uh, let FBI, me jump in. DOJ, IRS. Yes. Let me jump in. Uh, Catherine, from my perspective, watching all this and knowing you, uh, you founded also King Street Patriots. You right? quickly became a force to be reckoned with. That's true. I mean, you, you true, the vote became so powerful and spread like wildfire. People all over the country, and I, w- I remember interviewing you and sending people to you, me alone and other people, sure. of course. Uh, but it, it grew like wildfire. People understood that something's wrong with our voter rolls, with our voter ID system and all of that. And so you did become a power and a force. Here you are, this businesswoman from Texas who didn't really want to get involved. Right. And you become a central force in, in trying to clean things up. And so now let's go back to where you just were. Then the wrath of the federal government, led by Barack Obama, came down on you. Tell us about that in more detail, if you would. Sure. So, um, you know, prior to my starting through the vote, and and as you mentioned, um, I, you know, I've been a small business owner, um, had all manner of um, involvement across a wide variety of just like I, like I like to call myself a life activist. I was very active, but never had we had any um, engagement with the with any aspect of government beyond just you know filing our taxes. Once I filed that paperwork for five hundred one c three status, everything changed, and true, the vote became um, uh, for for two year for a two year period of time. Which, by the way, during that time, I didn't tell anyone, no one, because I was so. Um, I was so concerned about the stigma of, of what, why, why does, why, why is this all happening? And, and I see now clearly the coordination, but at the time when you're going through it, um, it, it just felt, it so, it felt so out of control and I couldn't, I, I was so unprepared. I was not political uh, or, or, you know, I, I had no real basis for what was happening, but I think that you, you, you said it right, that, you know, we tapped into a nerve. True the Vote was in the right place at the right time with the right message, and it resonated with people um, who felt it across the country. Something is wrong with our elections. Let's get involved. And, and the left, who had for ever uh, been uh, the only voice on that battlefield around what they would refer to as voting rights, um, you know, pushing for uh, the lack of standards, you know, no ID. Uh, as long an election, uh, early election period as you can possibly have, the, the, the fewer the standard, the better, uh, where we came in and said, wait, this just doesn't make common sense. That was a real threat. And so they, they worked awfully hard uh, to, to try to keep us quiet. And, yeah, um, let, and that took- let me jump in, because I think uh, some people, some, We'll remember your tangle with the IRS, and we're going to get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the other agencies. I mean, what was OSHA, the FBI? Sure. I mean, how many agencies again? There were five different agencies. Um, the way it first looked was the FBI began to show up at 
our meetings. As you said, we I'd started two organizations at the time. There was King Street Patriots and True the Vote. And they were they were separate. One King Street was a was a 501c4, which is a different kind of organization that um, is is organized in a different way. And then True the Vote was a C3, so nonpartisan, very focused on election integrity work. And and the thought at the time was would we would host um, weekly meetings with King Street, and we would talk about any manner of things. Because at the end uh, of, of every uh, meeting that we had or every assemblage that we, that we pulled together, we would always point out that all that we are discussing here presupposes a free and fair election. So if we're not happy about the path of education or immigration or defense or you name it, it all depends upon the voice of the people being heard clearly and accurately at the ballot box. And so we need to do our part to help to true the vote. And, and so it was sort of that, that you know, that one-two um, combination that, that made it, you know, super, um, we, we think anyway, you know, super important. Uh, and the Obama administration must have thought so too, because, you know, the FBI agents first started to show up to the King Street Patriots, the meetings. Um, later, how did we you know that, that, Catherine, how did you know they were there and under what pretense? Well, um, initially, uh, they, they approached us and they wanted to see what they referred to as our member manifests. Well, we never kept a membership list, so we didn't have anything to offer, uh, but they wanted to see who was attending these meetings. Uh, they, you know, in the classic sort of, you know, uh, you know, curly wire behind the ear kind of kind of people that were showing up at these meetings, um, asking all kinds of questions. Um, wasn't until years later when I finally got access to our own uh, through Freedom of Information, uh, got access to our records to see that they were from the Domestic Terrorism Unit. Oh and uh, what you could, boy. yeah, and what you what could a precursor to through, what oh a precursor God. to what's Absolutely. happening now. Who do, you know, actually, Catherine, I had forgotten the FBI was involved with you, and that's way back during the Obama administration. That's let's right. uh, We have to take that's a break, right. and when we come back, let's recap the IRS portion of this, and then let's jump right in to what you've been doing to uncover what happened in the 2020 election and the preparation for the upcoming elections as well. My guest is Catherine Ingebrecht, founder and president of True the Vote. We'll be right back after this. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Pennsylvania's Commonwealth Court says for now, no excuse mail-in voting is no more. The majority opinion by President Judge Mary Hannah Levitt said changes to voting must be done through a constitutional amendment, one which must be presented to the people and adopted into law before mail-in voting can take place. The ruling declares Act 77 of 2019 unconstitutional. We're currently reviewing the opinion to understand its full scope, uh, and we'll certainly wait for this judicial process to play out before making any final legislative decisions. That's because the Pennsylvania Department of State says it'll appeal to the state Supreme Court. The Democratic majority bench could then issue what's called a stay, which would keep Act 77 in place until its ruling. You know, we're going to continue to monitor. Uh, I don't think anybody expects this process to be over entirely today. 
Friday's decision ruled in favor of Bradford County Republican Commissioner Doug McClinko, though it was Republicans who almost unanimously approved of Act 77 in 2019. 132 of the 134 Republicans in the legislature at the time voted for it. It was a compromise with Governor Wolf and Democrats to eliminate straight ticket voting. However, COVID-19 changed everything. More than 2.6 million Pennsylvanians used vote by mail in the 2020 election, and two out of three were registered Democrats. When Joe Biden won the election, calls to repeal Act 77 started. At the time it passed, there were no issues with regard to the constitutionality of the measure. It wasn't until many years later that we now find ourselves in a situation where folks are uh, raising claims along those lines. Governor Wolf said in a statement an appeal would come immediately. He also accused Republicans of wanting to, quote, strip away mail-in voting in the service of Donald Trump's big lie. The former president released his own statement celebrating the Commonwealth Court's decision. Matt Mazel, Fox 43 News. All right, Sandy Rios, back with you. We're talking about uh, the 2020 election list. We're going to get to that in a second. That is a huge story. It happened the end of January. Uh, and uh, remember that Pennsylvania was one of those states where they thought that they had a slam dunk case against election officials in that state, that the courts had misbehaved and put in place uh, loosening regulations that allowed thousands and maybe I don't even know how many, but maybe even a million people to vote uh, in the in the wrong way and illegally in Pennsylvania. But the court just refused to hear it. The Supreme Court refused to hear it. So that is a huge story and will probably have effect on the next upcoming election. Catherine Ingerbrecht is my uh, guest. She's the founder and president of True the Vote. And we're telling her little history, little, her history. It's not little. <laughs> it's a big deal. When she and her husband were business owners in Texas and got involved in politics and for- founded True the Vote and King Street Patriots, the weight of the federal government descended on them, came into their their shop, harassed them with OSHA regulations, and I guess probably the worst was the IRS. Anybody remember the name Lois Lerner? And so, Catherine, let's see if we can – you ended up testifying before Congress. You sued the IRS. And what was the outcome of all of that? Well, ultimately, we did sue the IRS after uh, uh, just – all manner of, of uh, you know, we, I think we ended up answering or being asked over 300 questions in our application that were just outrageous. And so all of that led to, a, to the lawsuit, congressional testimony. We sued the IRS in 2013. And then finally, uh, in the summer of 2019, we won. And it was really at that point, Sandy, that I thought, you know, maybe that maybe God has now released me from, you know, from the call. Maybe it's time to hang up the spurs. But uh even even that I mean that that victory was so short lived because we were already beginning to see stirrings um, on the horizon about what 2020 was to become and uh, and so we were right back in the eye of the storm. Yeah. So um, and, uh, and let me just say this on your behalf: these things don't happen without personal sacrifice. Catherine went through really hell. She did. And uh, and uh, so the fact that she's still involved is very impressive to me. And I that's just I'm t- saying to each of you, uh, we talked about what's happening with the truckers and we talked about all the names being released and, and personal information for those that donated. I'm one of those. And I, I was saying to you uh, this week, uh, those of you listening, uh, look, this is the nature of this war. Uh, we're all going to pay a price. It's just sooner or later <laughs> you pick your poison. Uh, and Catherine is okay. a great example of someone who's just uh, taken on a ton and uh, and come out, uh, she worked through it, and now she's fighting back still. All right, Catherine, let's go to Pennsylvania. Since I brought that up first and played that clip, 
Tell us a little bit more about what's happening in Pennsylvania now and what this court decision means, if you could. Well, sure. So what that court decision means is really a holdover from what was going on in late 2019, early 2020, the very things I referred to as as, as coming up on our radar uh, as being um, troublesome uh, and and ultimately uh, it was proven right. So So during that period of time, as COVID swept across the country like a fog, we saw uh, all manner of um, election standards being changed. Uh, in, in the case of, of Pennsylvania, we saw, you know, a, a opening of the floodgate to no excuse absentee votes. Of course, we also saw in Pennsylvania uh, the ability to count ballots after Election Day. All of it cr- across the country, we saw uh, the placement of privately funded drop boxes and the lack of standard around all of that. All of that was done. Uh, in ways that we, as, a, as an organization, um, believed was unconstitutional. And so back in 2020, we were actually suing in the in the summer, in the spring and summer of 2020, we sued in states like Pennsylvania and Virginia and uh, Nevada and New Mexico to try and stop the madness. Uh, but it was unstoppable. Um, and of course, the, the, those standards at the time were being um, couched as, oh, these are only emergency and they're only going to last because of this pandemic that we're in. And now, you know, uh, to no one's great surprise, they've been codified. And so we have to peel them back. And that is why what's happening in Pennsylvania and in Wisconsin and states across the country, they're peeling back the the illegalities and unconstitutional acts that occurred in 2020. And that is, those are huge, huge victories. Yes, they are. And I think of, again, John Eastman, our good friend John Eastman, was very involved in Pennsylvania. And I think they all felt that that was the case that was going to expose a lot. And then I forgot, was it, I can't remember which justice, just would not hear it. Uh, It was, uh, it comes before the Supreme Court and they they don't join, all nine of them don't deliberate. Uh, They they have different districts of the country, segments. And uh, I remember um, Alito being very upset that they did not take yeah. Pennsylvania's yeah. case. Um, yeah. And so, what, was, what was tricky about that, though, is that it was happening after the election. And I think one of the big lessons that we need to etch in stone and never forget is when you see things starting to go south, like we saw in the run-up to the election, we need to be quick to act. We cannot wait until it happens and hope it doesn't happen, because I will tell you, in my 10-plus years in this space, the left, is not playing to to win elections as much as they are playing to end them as we know them. And they will do it. They will do it. And we have to be swift of action to stop them. Yeah, I just have to say, uh, because it's on my mind this week, what's happening in Canada with Trudeau, the loss of the freedoms and rights of people to speak out, exercise their First Amendment right, say, I don't want to take that shot. Don't make me, you don't, you don't have the right to make me take a shot that may harm me or my children. Uh, it, they are just, they don't have, they have already, their rights have already been eroded. And that yes. is a living picture of what we're going to face here if we don't fight right now right. to make sure that our elections are free and fair. That's exactly uh, right. Government will not contain itself. Freedom must be defended. Uh, let me on Pennsylvania. Let me just before we move because I want to go to Georgia. Uh, Joe Biden in Pennsylvania allegedly, falsely, I think, won the election by eighty thousand votes. But we're talking about a ton of votes that came in there. I don't know what the breakdown is, but in each of these states, 
uh, the argument can easily be made, and we've had many people make it on this microphone, uh, that those states were those votes were wrongly counted, and there were so many measures of fraud. Let's go to Georgia. Georgia seems to get as much press as any state in the aftermath of this. I'm not sure why. Catherine, just a general question. Why do you think Georgia has become, in many ways, kind of the eye of the storm uh, as much as any of the states? Well, did someone target Georgia as um, particularly target, target it for nefarious undermining of the election? Well, I think two things make Georgia stand out. The first is that in the you know in the haze of the the general election, um, Georgia quickly became the epicenter because it held the balance or held the the, the telling of the balance of, of power in the Senate. You know that election was to foretell who would control the Senate. So the focus came there. It also was a shock because Georgia has long been a red state. It wasn't expected to go blue. All the pollsters didn't didn't anticipate that it would go blue. But but there was a very um, entrenched activist there by the name of Stacey, Stacey Abrams, who not just in Georgia, but across the country, um, had been, been working very, very hard to set up uh, the dynamic in Georgia to support uh, ultimately what was, what was to become the general election. One of the things she was doing was suing the state to prevent it from cleaning the voter rolls. And, and dirty voter rolls are the gateway to many of the problems uh, that we saw. And as you rightly point out, this was a thousand front war. There are many types of fraud in play. Uh, and, and, it, and it's not um, it's not that it all just started in 2020. Most of the things that we have seen have been in play for a very long time. But in 2020, for a variety of reasons, and certainly because of the, uh, the risk that uh, President Trump um, proposed to the to the to the rest of that slate, um, the left went all in uh, to try and subvert the process, and and they did. So let's kind of talk about little pieces of Georgia. It's also complex for me, you know, trying to cover all of this. It's a, it's a it's sure. a challenge for every state. But in Georgia, there's a lot of twists and turns. And one of the most recent reports, end of January, came out that uh, it's been discovered that an estimated two million original ballot images from the 2020 election were destroyed illegally. Do you, what can you say about that? Well, we have taken a, a hard look in Georgia and other states, but in Georgia particularly, at the chain of custody of documents, the um, documents that any if federal law requires that any document related to an, a federal election is to be kept for 22 months. And that didn't that didn't happen, not in Georgia and frankly, not in any state that we've that we've researched. But in Georgia, where, where we see gaps are around, you know, the ballot imaging, around um, chain of custody documents. And, you know, for our particular area of focus uh, around what we call ballot trafficking, um, the lack of surveillance video that was to have been captured at the drop boxes has been particularly disturbing. So let's because talk I, about I believe that. the American people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, the ballot trafficking, that's fascinating. And that did make a bit of national news, but not enough. And so you guys led the effort to kind of expose that. And I don't quite understand how you got that video. And just tell us what you found and how you got the images that you did get. Sure. So in the aftermath of the election, where we saw a lot of people that were um, new to the to the to the space and really trying to understand our elections and how they work and taking it from a, uh, a technological 
sort of looking at the machines and, and it, there's a lot. I mean, this is the fraud has been institutionalized. And Sandy, you've known me for a long time. You know, we've been pulling back, trying to pull back these layers and expose them for a long time. So what we saw in 2020 was a rush of of new people trying to figure it all at once. And that's a that's a tall order. So, you know, we saw a lot of that. What we did as an organization, though, uh, because of what we felt like we we we, we thought would be highest and best use of, of the time that we had is we tried to focus in on things that would ultimately be trackable, provable, evidence-based findings and not, not statistical probabilities or things that might have happened, but rather things that we could prove. And so to that end, um, we had some whistleblowers, some informants come forward uh, talking about the process that is broadly referred to as ballot harvesting. We think harvesting is far too nice a word. It's ballot trafficking. It is voter abuse and it's ballot trafficking. And so we, um, we, we wanted to find a way to, to identify whether or not, in fact, ballot trafficking was occurring. And our theory was that the privately funded drop boxes would be the most likely target for abuse because they were the least regulated. And so our first step post hearing these these descriptions from people who'd come forward in a handful of states. Uh, our first step was to procure what's called marketing data. Um, it's, it's also referred to as telemetric data, geospatial data. It's, it's the data that, that is emitted from your cell phone because all cell phones that have apps are all giving, giving out your data all day, every day. Every few seconds, your apps are sending up signals that are notifying whoever wants to pay for the information, they are notifying uh, where you are, what apps you're looking at, what other sites you visited, and a whole variety of, of, of information that, that puts you at a point in time. So what we did in, in simply stated is we set up what are called geofences or digital nets, if you will, around the drop boxes. Uh, based on their longitude and latitude. And then we looked at the marketing data that, that's available commercially for, for purchase to try to identify patterns of abuse of people that would go through these, these nets or, or approach um, within reasonable proximity, uh, approach these drop boxes. And then with the video, uh, be able to piece together the who to the why to the where uh, with, the, with the data uh, of, of people that were coming to these drop boxes repeatedly and video that would show them and we could match the timestamps. And so in Georgia, we did that uh, to the best of our ability with the video, which was available through open records requests. So and you found all of this it, is, was available. And you found in Georgia, what, I think 242 traffickers who made something like 5,662 trips to ballot drop That's boxes correct. between the early morning hours of 12 and 5 a.m. Um, there's so much more to that story, and we'll come back and kind of do a, 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 a coda on that. Uh, but my guest is Catherine Ingebrecht. The point is, they found a ton of stuff they probably didn't expect to find. Patterns of behavior, things that contributed to the fraudulent voting in Georgia. My guest is Catherine uh, Ingebrecht, and we're talking about True the Vote and the 2022 election. So stay tuned. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Getter or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio.
Well, there are two levels. One is what do we have to do this year? I'm not an officer in the state, so we have to rely on these guys that didn't do it last year. So what we're doing as a candidate is putting people in these polls, putting them in the precincts, and we're getting not 20 feet away. We're going to be sitting next to them this time. And believe me, we are educating and training people right now about what happened in 2020 to make sure it doesn't happen this year. More importantly, if we want to get this fixed, I've got to get elected to make sure that we enforce the laws in Georgia going forward. Uh, that's the uh, candidate for governor, Sonny Perdue. He was a senator who lost to the two, remember the two radical uh, leftists who won the Senate race because of all the chicanery that took place in Georgia. And I think the chicanery can be laid at the feet, uh, in particular, of the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. There's also lawsuits against Brad Raffensperger about the use of Dominion machines. I'm not sure, Catherine, if you're involved in that, but let me just say, for the purposes of setting the table here, uh, that the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, swore that the Georgia election was fair and free and was uh, talked out of both sides of his mouth constantly. It was just amazing to me. Uh, he said he didn't want this report that had been meticulously prepared. They'd gone through the Dominion machines and had evidence that there could it was attached to the Internet and people had the potential somewhere to flip votes, and that's just part of it. And Brad Raffensperger has fought the release of that report. Now suddenly he's saying... He's okay with this, the release of that report because they're lying and he wants it to be made public. But I'm reading that U.S. District Judge Amy Totenberger is overseeing this as an Obama nominee, and she says that she's going to look at that report before she decides to release it. It sounds all very smelly to me, but Catherine, um, I don't know if that's your end of this research. You can comment on that at least, even if you're not involved in that. Well, uh, we've not been involved in the the review of the Dominion machines. I mean, look, here, here's the bottom line. Um, machines are hackable. That's, that's true. Now, uh, whether or not they were hackable in the ways that have been presented heretofore um, is something I'm, I'm not prepared to really talk about. I, it's, not a, it's not a practice that I would be familiar with, understanding how decentralized our elections are. I, I don't really see the, the path to some of the things that have been claimed. But Dominion, along with all other election equipment, does have security flaws. Uh, I, I do know of the report, of, of at least the report I believe they're uh, referring to from J. Alex Halderman, where he uh, held a group of his uh, students uh, at the University of Michigan, I believe, uh, and they, uh, they were able to hack a machine. But the ability to hack a machine in, in isolation versus hacking into a very... Um, multi-layered, multivariate process is a, is a different deal. So it's, it's, that's a, it's a different matter. But I do say, want to say this about Brad Raffensperger. Um, Brad Raffensperger has opened an investigation into ballot trafficking based on the evidence that we have provided him, and it is moving forward. And so I want to, you know, I, I, for all the frustrations, I also want to be sure to, 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 to give credit where, where credit is, in fact, due, because he didn't have the information um, about what was happening at those drop boxes until we presented it. And when we presented it, he opened an investigation. We're working with his office to this day on, on that. And, of course, it's, it's much goes much more slowly than anybody would like, but they're being very thorough and thoughtful. Yes, for sure. Uh, and that's happening all over the country. I, I want to get to a couple of other that's states right. in a second, too. But, in fact, let's do it by asking you, this: the business of the traffickers, the ballot traffickers that you guys found and can quantify, at least to some extent, 
That's right. Uh, was that connected to the $420 million that Mark Zuckerberg donated to the campaign in Georgia and those other states as well? Well, in at least in some measure, yes, because those dollars were used to fund the placement of or the, the procurement of drop boxes and, uh, you know, and how, and how much more we're still pulling together. But, but what he did with that infusion of money was interjected uh, a whole new variety of, of ways to collect ballots, uh, both the, both the, the drop boxes themselves and staffing agencies that were being pulled in. All of this that was brand new to the process and that was not, um, was not clearly procedurally grounded in, in sort of who, you know, who's supposed to do what and how do we make sure that the checks and balances are there? It was money just thrown at the wall and um, and so again, what what we what we hypothesized was that, that 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 injection would lead to a weakness that that we believe we could use technology and data to measure, and that's where we have um, arrived with with now what we refer to as mules. Ultimately, we decided, you know, how do you take down a cartel, um, and and what are the variables inside of a cartel? You have mules that are that are running whatever the property is. You have stash houses that are the control for uh, whatever the the property is, if it's ballots, if it's humans, if it's drugs, uh, whatever whatever that is, you're going to have a stash house. And you have a drop point. And then in the case of the election, the drop point were those privately funded drop boxes. And so that is what we use uh, the data to measure and now the video to support. And, um, and we have a compelling story in the five states that we've looked at where, where ballot harvesting, a.k.a. trafficking, was absolutely coordinated and absolutely made um, you, the difference in in all the states. Yeah, and I need to restate that Mark Zuckerberg, of course, the CEO and founder of Facebook, uh, placed all of these millions of dollars into these swing states. And from all accounts, his over, you know, he spent more money than the local authorities by by exponential amounts that they really had to put into elections and basically ended up being Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook and his entity, his wife also, are running the elections in these five states, uh, recruiting workers, advertising, and training, but not not for everyone, not for Republicans, only on a nominal basis, mostly uh, leftists and uh, Democratic voters. It was really, uh, we've never seen anything like that happen before, and we know that it had a tremendous right. effect on the election. Let's go to where Arizona, just say a word about, we're going to talk about a few states here, and then I also want to talk, Catherine, about what's coming up, what we think we've got in place for the upcoming midterms in the 2024. So Arizona, how are they doing? Arizona, uh, they actually already have a couple of indictments from people that were trafficking ballots in the primary, uh, and, and what will be exposed in the weeks and months ahead is that uh, it didn't just happen in the primary, it happened in the general, and our data will be uh supportive uh, to to make those cases um same thing is true in all the states that we're we're we've worked in i mean because we found the same thing in varying degrees in michigan in wisconsin and uh in pennsylvania where we where we discussed already some of the things that um you know were thrown into the to the mix of confusion in 2020 well pennsylvania as it relates to ballot trafficking uh is the is the the top of the mountain that we have, really? we have over 1,100 people, over 1,100 people who went to drop boxes more than 35 times. We have 10 people who went to drop boxes over 100 times. 
And all of that's provable in the data. So, Catherine, just to break that down, this, you know, uh, voter trafficking for dummies, what exactly were they doing? You know, were they going out and themselves filling out lots of ballots or what, where were they getting their ballots? Do you know anything about that? Well, there's a nexus between these individuals. In order to make our criteria, they had to go to a minimum number of drop boxes. And, of course, all of this is, you know, us just trying to sort of figure out how far outside of the normal curve we should look. And and so when you when you look at data at, at this level, and we're looking at, you know, almost a petabyte of data, it's, it's a massive amount of data. But what's great about having that much data is, is patterns begin to emerge. And you can see how, you know, the normal, if you will, sort of the normal population of voters, the normal curve looks, and then there's an outlier set. And it was that outlier set that we focused in on. And it's a little different in every state. In Georgia, we set the limit at 10. We, they had to go to at least 10 drop boxes. Does that, does that mean that people that went, you know, nine times, eight times, seven times weren't doing something wrong? Absolutely not. But we just don't have the capacity to, to, to drill in and prove up that much. And so in, in the case of Georgia, it was, the cutoff was 10. In, in Pennsylvania, as I say, we have over 1,100 people that based upon the, the individual cell phone activity of that person, we can place them at that drop box, um, you know, more than 35 times each on average. It's outrageous. And, and, and the other piece of the, of, the, of the formula for us was a nexus between those same devices, those same cell phone devices, and nonprofit organizations. And so we have a, a, a listing of nonprofit organizations that were, some of them were mentioned or given to us by whistleblowers and informants that we wanted to see whether or not the data bore out. Um, others we've learned along the way that have been added. And, and, you know, the most important thing I think about everything that we're providing is uh, we're only looking at what the data shows us. So if the data shows us the nexus of these people going to drop boxes and then also to a certain address repeatedly, and then that address turns out to be the headquarters of a nonprofit organization, that's going to make our report. And so how those ballots got there, uh, a variety of ways, um, and the stories are a little bit different state to state, but on balance, what what I can absolutely confirm is that the targeting of of vulnerable communities, of the elderly, of of minority communities, of of economically uh, disadvantaged communities, um, of government housing type communities, those those are the areas that we see predators abusing voters, taking their ballots, sometimes in exchange for cash, sometimes in exchange for favor, like access to housing, access to food programs, access to education for their children and services for their children. It is, it's a despicable process, and that's why we are using terms like trafficking and voter abuse because that's what's happening and it's it is robbing the, the those people of their right to have their voices heard and um and it's happening all over the country yes okay so uh, so we're concentrating on those five states that were uh the swing states that the left seemed to understand they needed to target and they okay. did successfully Arizona Pennsylvania right. Wisconsin Georgia and Michigan I just read a commentary well this is a private comment from someone 
uh, that uh, they, Wisconsin, they believe, is in really good shape for the upcoming elections. We'll see about that. And that brings me to my question to you. Do you feel like we have managed, meaning patriotic Americans who want elections to be free, uh, do you think we have managed to harness voter rolls and voter laws and mail-in balloting, balloting and all of it enough to kind of uh, no. make sure that we have a good 2022 election? No, I, I believe that you know, there's so much good that has happened. And, and let's, let's look at Wisconsin. One of the great things that's happened in Wisconsin recently is that the courts have ordered that there will be no use of drop boxes in the upcoming April elections. That's fantastic. But we can't rest on our laurels. Does that mean that they're only for April and it's going to be back in November? Uh, you know, the, the, we have to keep the pressure on. Those absentee ballot drop boxes, among many uh, election standards that were changed in 2020, those have to be rolled back. Um, our voter rolls are notoriously inaccurate, and that was true long before 2020. There are ways that citizens can be, be involved in helping bring uh, ineligible records to the attention of their counties, and that's something that True the Vote's working on. We have a, a web-based app called iv3.us that people can check out and, and help to support uh, their local counties and their local voter rolls and getting them cleaned up. Um, there are, are we better off than we were in 2020? Uh, in many ways, yes. Uh, but the biggest of those ways is that people are waking up and asking tough questions and are, in, are, are being engaged. And just your participation changes things. Just being involved changes in, in incalculable ways um, the ability for people who would otherwise be able to get away from get away with it scot-free. Um, it, it changes their ability to do that because now you've got honest eyes on the process that are asking questions, and that's what we need. We need people to make sure that there's no polling place left unmanned, that there's no registry left unchecked. And that's the way we find our way back to a free and fair process. Well, we saw a hint of that in Virginia at the recent elections. Uh, Not that much had changed in terms of voting rules and regulations, but the people just became activated and swarmed their polls and were, you know, became trained and paid workers and actually uh, did did a wonderful job. And it's kind of inspiring to the rest of us. True the vote, true the vote. They do training for people that to work at the polls. You heard all of the resources. We'll put it on our getter outlet so that you can see that. And uh, Catherine Engelbrecht, you've been a great example to all of us. And I hope that you and I can speak again on the air uh, together just to bring people up to date on what you're doing in a little bit, a little bit further down the road. Thanks so much for joining us. This is Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.